I call your attention this morning and this evening to the same passage of scripture out of Luke chapter 4. It is the first sermon Jesus preached in Nazareth and it was also his last one. He never preached there again. So it's a solemn chapter. It's a beautiful chapter. The gospel preaching that there took place in Nazareth was the first time the walls had ever heard a sermon like that. But sadly, it also ended up to be the last time that the synagogue in Nazareth ever had to preach your Jesus in their midst. So that's why I want to take a little time this morning in the first sermon to really walk through the context of the sermon that Jesus preached. Uh, in the verses uh, of our chapter. And of course, he preached it not out of Luke. He preached it out of Isaiah 61. We'll read that chapter tonight in our evening uh, service. But the chapter that he quotes out of is Isaiah 61. And that's the heart of the sermon, though we don't have the sermon. We don't have any word about the sermon. It says in verse 20, he closed the book. And in verse 21, he fulfilled the scriptures. And in verse 22, it tells us that it was a wonderful sermon. But we don't know what he preached. He expounded the scripture, and that's what my task is also tonight. And we'll make a beginning on that portion from verse 18 to 20 uh, to uh, 19, and then finish it up tonight. But let's first look at the context. No doubt it's an eager audience that packs the church in Nazareth. Now, the church, no doubt, is filled to the last seat. And everyone is with full anticipation expecting to hear something that they've been hearing rumors about. Because Jesus has began his preaching tour through the country of Galilee, as you could read in verse 14. As he returned from his his uh, temptation in the wilderness is 40 days of retirement battle. Then he comes back and the fame of him goes around through all the regions as he taught in the synagogue, being glorified of all. I mean, everybody is praising him up and down about what an incredible man this is that is preaching through the synagogues of Galilee. And there are many of them. And now he has returned to Nazareth. It says in verse 16, he came to Nazareth, he brought up. As his custom was, for 30 years, it was his custom to go every Sabbath day to hear a sermon that totally misunderstood and misinterpreted the Bible. He didn't leave his seat empty. He didn't walk away from an erring church. He battled through for 30 years listening to the sermons that totally dishonored his father and totally misunderstood the gospel. Now, that must have been a a suffering for our Lord, having to witness that, hear that, sitting in his seat. So he knows the struggles that many Christians go through, who are perhaps through providence in places where the truth is not preached, Entirely faithful to the scriptures. But now they are here, all sitting together waiting. The actions in Capernaum have raised enormous expectations about 
not Jesus, about about the Messiah. Everyone is thinking Messiah. Everyone is thinking the promised one. Everyone is tense about this Messiah. Nazareth was established around 200 B.C. in Galilee of the Gentiles. That's what it was called. And so for a moment, understand what Nazareth is. Nazareth is a settler's town. Settlers from the south in Judah have moved up to the north to sit among the Gentiles, claim a little land, begin to build villages. And those villages have grown into small little cities. Nazareth one of those. And that happened all after the Maccabean Aristobulus conquered Galilee again. The Jews began to campaign of settlements, as they're still doing today in the West Bank, to reclaim the land that was theirs. So these are the Nazareth Knights. These are the people that live in Nazareth. These are the people Jesus grew up with. And the town is filled with messianic expectation. Now that's important to remember as we look at the sermon that Jesus began to preach. For it is a political audience and not a spiritual audience. The people are not sitting in church hungry to hear about salvation from sin. They're not coming to church. At least the general population of Nazareth is not sitting in church with a hunger to know God and to be delivered from their sin. They are here with political aspiration, political views. Why? How do I know that? Well, Isaiah 61 happened to be one of the most favorite chapters among the Jews. And you will read it yourself this afternoon and take the time to do that. This, this whole chapter is filled with the Messianic age. This is filled with Messianic prophecies about a golden age for the Jews, where the Jews will be on the top and the Gentiles will be their servants. This is a time for blessing for the church, where God's people, the Israelites, will be the priests and the ministers and everyone else will be the servants. The Jews have looked at that chapter for centuries through the political view. Of they will one day be on the top. It appears when Jesus is in the synagogue that he stands up to read. That was the custom. That one who is asked to read the scriptures. And then it was delivered to him the book of the Isaiah. But then notice what it says in verse 17. When he opened the book, he found the place. It appears that Jesus purposely found Isaiah 61. It wasn't just the reading for the day. It was the chapter he chose to read. And as you'll read it yourself this afternoon, and we'll see it better tonight briefly, although I won't go all of Isaiah 61 tonight, I'll only focus on the verses 18 and 19. This evening from uh, Luke 4. But that's the audience. What is our Jesus going to say about how the old waste places will be built up? 
And how the Gentiles will become the servants. And how the Jews will be the wealthy, the glorious one. Well, then thirdly, you'll notice in, I look in very disappointed audience. Let's open your, your Bible to the reading from Luke. And you saw this that Jesus begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind and to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year. And then it reads in verse 20, and he closed the book. Now if you look at Isaiah 61, where did he stop reading? In the middle of verse 2. That's all he read. He stopped. And if you look at verse 28, congregation, I wonder what is happening. It says in verse 28, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Now the Greek says this, They were slowly on getting more and more wrathful. As Jesus is preaching, something is happening in this church. They are getting angry and angrier and angrier and angrier. And finally it bursts. What is Jesus preaching? That makes these men in this synagogue so angry that they are indeed willing to murder him. Isaiah 61 is their favorite chapter. It's been always their dream. It's been their expectation. And the Messiah comes. And it will be like this. And he is preaching, talking, speaking about that dream, isn't he? That have been, they've been fed up with that since they were young boys and young girls and young men, young women, always thinking about this messianic age to come in which we will be out our Romans and in which we will be, we will be the conquerors and the, and the subduers of all. The congregation wasn't what Jesus read that shocked them. Can I ask you to go to Isaiah 61 for a moment to see what happens here? It's not what Jesus read that shocked them or caused them displeasure. For as you see in Isaiah 61, though the wording is slightly different than what we have in the Greek New Testament, but the essence is exactly the same. It's not what Jesus read. It is what Jesus didn't read was the problem. If you look at verse 2, his last quote is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book at that point. He didn't read the next half. And the day of vengeance of our God. One author says, there's already a 2,000 long year comma between the first half of the verse and the second half, and we do not know how long the comma will be. The first half of this verse and verse 1 speaks about Jesus' first coming. 
The second half speaks about his second coming. And that's what the Jews didn't like. They are they're very displeased that he stopped right there when he speaks about the day of vengeance. The day that we get even with those enemies. The day that we throw them out. The way that we get all these people that have been subduing us to throw them out. And we will be served. As you notice in verse 4, the waste places are going to be built. In verse 5, the strangers shall stand and feed our flocks. And the son of the alien shall be our plowman and our vine dressers. And we shall be called the priests of the Lord. And men shall call us the servants of God. And we will eat the riches of the Gentiles. And their glory shall be for us. That he didn't read. And that was the problem. Congregation. Jesus did that intentionally. His first coming to this earth and his coming into our midst this morning, his coming into the synagogue of Nazareth was not vengeance. Vengeance is the positive word for justice, not revenge. Vengeance is the When a judge punishes an evildoer, that's vengeance. Revenge is when you take it and you smash someone up for what he did to you. That's revenge. Jesus has not come in his first coming for vengeance. He says later on in Luke 9, verse 56, when his firebrands, disciples John and James, his Lord, will we... Will thou that we pray that the Father would make fire come down from heaven to burn up these Samaritans like Elijah did in days of old? And this is what Jesus says. You do not know what manner of spirit you are. Now notice it says in the Bible he rebuked them. He says, boys, you're wrong. You don't get it. Listen. Ye know not what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man is come, not come to destroy, but to save. You see, this is where the anger is built in Nazareth. I have not come to destroy, I have come to save. Have you read, and are you reading, in Jesus' first coming to the world, the heart of God. He walked into paradise fallen in the cool of the morning or evening to seek sinners, not to destroy them. They did it already. They were already destroyed. God does do no destroying after all. It's we that do the destroying. But he came to to save men's lives from the destruction they caused themselves. Is it beaming on your mind, my friend, that Jesus is the revelation of the heart of a loving father who is hurt, who is offended, who is dishonored? But he's not out on revenge. He will be a God of vengeance. He will be a God of justice, 
But he's not a God that is out for revenge. He is out seeking, coming, speaking to us about return ye and I will abundantly pardon. John Owen, may I take him on my pulpit here this morning, wrote, as long as you see the Father as harsh, as judging, and as condemning, you will be filled with fear and dread every time you draw near to him. And that's what we read of sinners fleeing and trembling and hiding from him. Why? Because they see him as harsh, fierce, judgmental. But he says, but when you see God as he is, the Father, filled with love, your soul will be filled with will be filled with love to God in return. If you don't have that love to God, then ask the Lord now to reveal Himself to you in and through this person that stands here on the pulpit in Sinai, in Nazareth. I'm not come to destroy. I'm come to preach the gospel of the poor. I'm here to heal the brokenhearted. I'm here to bring captivity liberty to the captives I'm not here to destroy I'm not here to imprison I'm not here to send off to hell I'm here to open the way to heaven I'm here to seek you to take you and to bring you to the heavenly glory that you have all broken and brought away I'm here as the preacher in Nazareth pulpit to preach to you the gospel you notice What happened next in this sermon? Verse 21. Jesus brings the sermon to an unexpected shock. As he closes the book, get the impact. Brethren, this day, this moment... This scripture of Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in me. Here stands Jesus. He has lived for 30 years. He's gone into the kitchens, the living rooms, the sheds. He's done the carpentry work of the neighbors in Nazareth. They've seen him with his apron, with his hammer, with his toolbox. This young Jesus, who grew up to be 30 years old Jesus, he left the city of Nazareth. A couple of months later, he comes back and he stands on that pulpit and he says, This day, Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in me. This is the sermon, isn't it? That here Jesus preaches. An unexpected shock. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't glory. We are the seed of Abraham. We are Moses' children. We are the faithful of God. We are the nation God loves. We are the people that God only thinks of. He didn't even mention the messianic golden age in which the Jews would beat down Gentiles and make them servants. He's not out for a rally. 
with the theme to make the Jews great again. That's not Jesus. He's come to preach the gospel to sinners. It's about a great God in the face of great sinners. His mission is not political. His mission is not militaristic. His mission is not social. His mission is not materialistic. None of that is in Jesus, is in Jesus' view. His mission is spiritual. His mission is your heart. Your mission is your relationship with God. Your, your, your freedom from sin. Your freedom from the burden and the guilt of sin and of the bondage and the power and addiction of sin. His mission is to deliver you. From all that is ungodly. And they can't deny, verse 22, that his sermon is, uh, is gracious. They say they all bear him witness and they wonder that the gracious word should proceed out of his mouth. And they said to him, is this not Joseph's son? Congregation. They all agreed. That his words are, are amazing. Yet they're all filled with want. With unbelief. Listen again. As Jesus sees happening, what's happening in verse 22, they're amazed, impressed. They're thinking, this, this, this is not the Messiah, this is Joseph's son. This is the carpenter. This is, we know his father Joseph. We know his mother Mary. We know his brothers and his sisters. We know this man. We've seen him. And then Jesus says, verse 23. He said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me in their heart, as they're listening to him, You will say to me, This proverb, physician, heal thyself. I've been trying to trying to understand what that means. I'm not quite sure what that means. But maybe they mean, come around, please. Think differently about what you've been telling. Hear yourself. You're wrong. You're not on the right page in Isaiah 61. It's about us and about the Mosaic, the kingdom, the new millennial, as it were. Hear yourself. Preacher, you're wrong. Maybe it's what it means. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in this country. What is Jesus reading in their thoughts, congregation? What is Jesus reading? Unbelief. Let's put it plain. They didn't believe a word of what he said. They didn't believe his interpretation of Isaiah 61 was right, but they certainly didn't believe that he who's standing on their pulpit is the Messiah. They want none of that. And then he preached a warning, didn't he? Immediately the application, verse 24 to 27, is a severe warning. Verily I say unto you, it's the first time I think he said verily. I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel 
in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Zarepta, a city of Zidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Why did Jesus use that example? And the next one. Why does he bring Nahum into the picture? There were many lepers in the days of Elijah. None of them was saved. Except this Naaman. What's the point of bringing in these two? Now notice, these two were Gentiles. And they believed. The widow, you are a man of God. Naaman. I believe that little girl in my kitchen. I believe Elijah. Yeah, this, Jesus is giving a severe warning here, congregation. Never will you ever hear Jesus taking unbelief in protection. It seems like everywhere we go in the scripture, you will, you, you'll notice that. Here is his first sermon, and let us understand this well. After this sermon, Jesus shook the dust of the feet from Nazareth and never returned again. They had one sermon. No, no. They had 30 years of life. Backing up his sermon. They've seen this young man. They have seen this young man. They've touched him, heard him, seen him. They have seen something of the life of God, the holiness, the fear of God, the love for sinners, the love for others, his humility, his meekness, his obedience, his devotion, his dedication. His, he all of them have seen it. And now he proclaims at the end of those 30 years, what you've seen in me is the Spirit of God is upon me. I am the Messiah. And he warns them, as God bypassed the Jews to go to a widow in Zarepta, as God bypassed all the lepers of Israel to go to a leper in Syria. Now that's his sovereignty, but that is more his judgment. So I will bypass you, O Nazareth, if you will not listen to my message. If you, uh, if you read it in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it is, yes, Matthew 13, when Matthew writes about Jesus coming into Nazareth, then the last verse of that is, and he did not many mighty works there. Why not? Because of their unbelief. Finally, an enraged and a murderous audience. And all they that were in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city 
and led him into the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. It indicates in verse 28 that the rage was building as they were listening and finally it exploded in the synagogue as they listened to Jesus. And why is that, congregation? There are two reasons, isn't it? The first reason is that Jesus claimed he is the Messiah. In me is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Though the sermon was flawless and though his life was consistent, though he was a familiar face, they say in verse 22, this cannot be the Messiah, this is just Joseph's son. It's just Joseph's son, Jesus, that we have known all our life. They're confused. Matthew extends it a little bit more, the discussion that is going on about him. And perhaps it is happening right in the synagogue as they are sitting there. They're talking to each other. It says, this is not the carpenter's son. It's not his mother called Mary and his brethren are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where does this man has these things? Where does he get this from? Where does he claim this from? How does he claim this that he is the Messiah? I've heard some of his mighty works that he's done in Capernaum already. But I cannot believe it. But the second reason that they finally rise up and explode in their anger is the application of verse 24 to 27. And this is the first time that Jesus hears. Away with him. It's not the last time. But this is the first time. Away with him. A congregation, what happens in the synagogue of Nazareth is a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 51 to 53. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you, nay. But rather, I have come to bring division on earth. From henceforth there shall be five in one house, divided. Three against two, two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the father. The mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the mother and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Expect it. Wherever the gospel is preached faithfully and purely, there will be division. In families, in churches, in communities. That's what Jesus said. It's happened in Nazareth, happens in Jerusalem, happened in Capernaum, happened in everywhere. You go study the church's history. Wherever the church is preaching the gospel purely, there'll come division. Peace is only the result when Jesus' gospel is believed. 
But when there are hearers of the gospel who are hardening themselves against the word of God, now unrepentant and unbelieving and determined to have their sin or their pride, that will always bring division in a church, in a family, in a marriage. That's not the fault of the gospel. That's not the fault of Jesus. That is the fault of the heart that doesn't want Jesus. We see that here in Nazareth, isn't it? In an amazing way. The fault is never in God, never in the gospel, never in the preaching of the gospel. Always in the rebellious, sinful heart. Now, having looked at this context of this important sermon, let us then give our attention to the sermon itself. Let's sing together first in Psalter 324, verse 1 through 4. My grieving soul, revive, O Lord. And what follows in 324, all verses.
So Jesus preached a sermon about himself. That is really what the text is in verse 18 and 19. And he says three things about himself. And I'll be very brief, just a little on the first point, because I see my time is far gone. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'll say something on that, and we'll complete the rest of it tonight. I am filled with the Spirit. I'm come to preach the gospel. And I am the gospel himself. Now, this first statement, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's a very important statement. You and I must never disconnect Jesus, the Son of Man, from the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, he received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He is anointed without measure, without limits. We have limits. No matter who you are as a child of God, we always have a limited supply. But Jesus had the full supply. The Holy Spirit dwelt in him and filled him to the brim, as it were. Now, Jesus Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget that. As the Son of Man, he was dependent on the Spirit, as you and I are. He less, because he's no sinner. But he's still a human. He's dependent on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has given us the record in the Scriptures to verify that he did everything through the Holy Spirit. I've given you your outline. Three verses you can check yourself. The presence of the Holy Spirit was needed for him to accomplish his sacred work as the Son of Man. As much as we need the Holy Spirit also. But Jesus as a mediator in his, in his additional work. As a son of man, he needed the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when he begins his mediatorial work, his actual material mediator's work, he is then anointed. Though we read out of Luke 2, the last sermon I preached from that chapter, that he was with the Spirit from his youth of Almoret. Matthew Henry says beautifully, Jesus is fully anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwelt in him, not as in a jar, but as a fountain, as a bottomless ocean. Matthew 12 tells us that he did the miracles through the Spirit. And notice that yourself as you read that passage. Through the, through the Spirit he did the miracles. Hebrews 9 tells us that he offered himself to God without spot through the eternal spirit. And in Romans 8 verse 11, he rose from the dead through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus and the Holy Spirit are intimately connected. That is what he means here. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now let's learn from that. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. How much do you and I need it? Luke is the only author that takes note of Jesus' prayer life. If you have the time this week, follow that one. Pick up all the passages about prayer and look where you find Jesus praying. Sometimes throughout the whole night. What's he praying for? Ultimately or undoubtedly also, 
for the spirit, for the wisdom. But he needs it, we need it. He was sinless, spiritually unmarred. We are sinful and spiritually totally depleted. And even as saints of God, we are but poor and needy. Now let me just only say that about this first thought. But congregation, what a gospel that is. The spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. We're not coming to Jesus as you come to a counselor or to a pastor or to a friend. And you lay out your problem before him. You know, so many times as a pastor, I hear all these problems and I am saying, Lord, I don't even know what to say. Let alone what to do about this. You never had that with Jesus. He has an unlimited spirit. An unlimited wisdom and power and an insight to do what we cannot do. Congregation are glad tidings. Not only is he has an, an inexhaustible supply, he also has a readiness to give. He is not holding that spirit back. He's willing to give that spirit. Therefore, there's no heart too barren. There's no soul too sinful. There is no one too corrupted. There is no one filled with too many devils that would not be a match for Jesus. All his miracles testify to that. And therefore, friends, turn to him immediately. And always first, before you seek God. John Calvin really pointed it out to me this week again. Never, never seek your salvation apart from Jesus. Don't cry to God. He's inaccessible to you and hidden for you. He's a holy and righteous being. The almighty God. No, he says, always first come to Jesus. For he has the spirit and he is the way to the heart of God the Father. Oh, not forget that. The Father who gave to Jesus the spirit. There it is, baptism. It's the Father who proclaims him to be the one with whom he is well pleased. And therefore, in saying to us this morning, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, what does Jesus say to you and me? I have all the supplies. I have everything that you need. Don't look anywhere else. Bring your emptiness, your brokenness, your poverty, your bondage, your addiction, your guilt. You bring it to me. And I am here for you. I am here, Nazareth. I'm here, Carterton, for you. I came to preach to you this message, he says. And please... The Spirit is on me. Don't doubt me. I can mend all what is broken. 
Yeah, now don't think not spiritually, think not physically, don't think socially, don't think economically. There's many things that will remain broken that way. There will be many things that will never get fixed. This is the world we live in. And the miracles Jesus did were only a little foreshadowing of what is coming to give us that hope, to give us that perspective, yes, one day. But in the meantime, you will not participate of that. There is no receiving and believing of Jesus Christ. Let me close with a poem that I found this week that struck me. And let us read it together and then I will pray with you. The poem is written by John Dickey, who is a gospel minister, was in Scotland. Now I want you to know the circumstances that this man wrote this poet. He laid in his bed, helpless for eight years, with intense bodily and mental suffering. And he wrote this poem. And then he died after eight years. And he entered into the eternal rest of God triumphantly. So goes the testimony. He wrote in the silence of the night. On my past life I lay musing, thinking, and wept that it was a long life of God's great mercy abusing. And I scarcely could think that there was pardon for me. But the voice to my heart whispered, Mercy is free. I thought that, I thought of my sins that no angel could muster their greatness. Their blackness overwhelms me with wonder. If there be but one soul beyond mercy, it is me. But there is none, said the voice, seeing mercy is free. I thought of the vows which in fervor I had spoken, all meant to be kept, yet all shamefully broken. All baser than Judah, can grace stand for me, even to you, spoke the whisper, for mercy is free. I thought of the talents with which I had been, which I had been entrusted, some wasted on pride, others with slothfulness rusted. And I cried in my anguish, oh, where shall I flee? said the whisper. To Jesus, his mercy is free. Oh, how can such guilt as mine be forgiven? Oh, how can a soul such as I enter heaven, while in hell there are millions that never sinned like me? It's all, said the voice, because mercy is free. Oh, Jesus, my Lord, at thy footstool now kneeling, I ask thee afresh, both for pardon and healing. And I pray that henceforward thou will keep me for thee. To which the voice answered, it is granted, for mercy is
three. Will you be found before Jesus today? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that mercy is free. So free from our side. So costly from thy side. And that again, Lord Jesus, thou hast reminded us of this morning. Thou hast preached to us what thou preached in Nazareth. And we'll hear the rest this evening. Thou grant us the grace and spirit. And Lord, please, will thou speak it to our heart. Mercy is free. And that with thee there is spirit, infinite and ready. Thou dost receive all that come unto thee. Oh, God, let this morning not be ending in our hearts like it ended in the hills of Nazareth. Though they weren't able to kill thee, they sure did so spiritually. And, oh, God, we pray that we may not be like them. For what what in sorrow will there be? When we have said in our life, away with thee. Please, Lord, let that not be our answer. But may it be that we also today at thy footstool kneel, asking thee for pardon and healing. It is there with thee. Oh, hear us. In Jesus' name, amen.